everyone, to Breaking Big Blue. I'm your host, Jordan Ron on ESPN, ESPN.com, Giants reporter. And I'm back fresh off vacation, feeling rejuvenated, re-energized, and ready for football. But the bigger question is, is football ready for us? And the answer right now appears to be no. The Giants and the rest of the league were supposed to report to training camp pretty much two weeks from now. I'm taping this on Wednesday night. Uh, July 28th, they're supposed to report to training camp. They're supposed to be back on the field by July 29th. But whether that's going to happen or not is up in the air. The players and the owners still have to agree on what this COVID-19 landscape for the NFL is going to look like. Are there going to be preseason games? How often are they going to test? When are they going to test? Everything that's involved with keeping everyone safe and healthy not only in training camp, but throughout this season, still needs to be agreed upon. So the Giants coaches are supposed to come back in town the end of this week. Because remember, you know, they're hired in January. The pandemic hits in March. Most of them at that point are not living in New Jersey permanently. Heck, Joe Judge only had a temporary residence in New Jersey. So most of the coaches then, when the pandemic hits, Judge says, go home to your families. So they're all working remotely, you know, around the country, wherever they're from. I know Thomas McGahee, the special teams coach, he's based out of Houston. Uh, Freddie Kitchens, the tight ends coach, I believe he's out of uh, Florida. You know, Joe Judge was out of uh, Massachusetts for much, for a big part of the offseason. So they're coming back into town this week. They don't have to do the mandatory 14-day self-quarantine that most people coming from uh, – high-risk states at this point that come into New Jersey have to do because they're going to get tested. They're getting tested, I believe, on Friday. You know, and they're going to be tested throughout. They're considered Tier 1. Tier 1 is is along with the players. They're going to probably, that's probably going to be their classification. Again, nothing is finalized, but there are some guidelines out there that we think this is what it's going to look like. So, they won't have to do that 14-day self-quarantine, but they're going to be tested, and they're going to be tested often. How much? We, we still... Don't really know, but we'll find out hopefully within the next few days, week, whatever. So uh, the rookies were even supposed to come in, I believe, on Sunday. Don't think that's happening now. Be very surprised if it did. So that's now being pushed back. Who knows when we're going to start? Who knows what the season is going to look like? That's all up in the air. We sit here, wait for the guidelines and the rules to all be set and put forth. And, you know, really they have to decide – is it even safe at this point for teams in some of these high-risk hotspot areas around the country to even get back and play football right now? I think that's a big question that they have to answer, and we'll see what they come up with in regards to that. So while we're on hold, I have a special guest in this episode. We're going to talk to the voice of the New York Giants. That would be Bob Papa. And we're going to find out, how do you become the voice of the New York Giants, which Bob Papa has been for the last 26 years, right? What was that journey like? And what were some of his favorite moments, best calls, uh, what it's been like to work with legends like Dick Lynch, Carl Banks, Dave Jennings, uh, his relationship with the legendary Giants announcer, Marty Glickman, and how he sort of served as, as his mentor and helped him get into the role that he's in right now. So that's what we're going to do in this episode for the most part. We're going to talk to Bob Papa about what it's like 
to be the voice of the Giants. So let's get right to it. On to the next one. All right, let's bring in our guest this week, Bob Papa, play-by-play voice for the New York Giants. Season number 26 coming up, Bob. Uh, that's, that, that's a, you know, a quarter of a century of being the play-by-play voice of the Giants. You're, you're in the, the likes of the Marty Glickmans, Jim Gordons, Dick Lynch's. Like, that's the category you enter when, when you've been with the team that long. What's, what do you make of that when, when somebody says that to you? Jordan, first of all, it's great to be on this show. Um, it's shocking, actually, because it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. I mean, I started uh, as part of the Giants broadcast team, actually, as far back as 1988, doing the post-game show and then a pre-game show. Absolutely. And then I fil- filled in on some play-by-play in the 92 and 93 season. And I can still remember the first game, although it was a terrible game for the Giants. It was opening night, and they got blown out at home by the Cowboys. Uh, but having my dad with me in the booth at the old Giants stadium, and uh, it, it, when you say 26 years, it's like, really? It's been that long? But mm-hmm. I guess I guess it has. You know, three Super Bowls and two wins. So it's just makes me feel old, I guess. <laughs> well, you got another at least 20 in you, Bob. So, I mean, you, you're, you're going to get, you're going to get to close to, at least close to 50, maybe, you know, maybe more, who knows? So, you, you well, know, you know what, as long as the eyesight remains intact and the uh, Mara and the Tish family want to have me along <laughs> for the ride, I'll, I'll sign up for another 20 years. And another three Super Bowls, I'm sure that, that wouldn't be too bad either. I take one at this point. <laughs> Fair point. Well, let's start out with where we're at right now, because I'm interested to hear what you think as an announcer, uh, as a play-by-play broadcaster, of the possible limitations and how, you know, this coronavirus and, you know, they, they really haven't even agreed to the, what the rules are going to be this year, who's going to be allowed to go where, who's going to be allowed to travel. As a broadcaster, how are you approaching this? What, what do you think the limitations are going to be? What, what do you think might change? Uh, I think we got to get back to that Super Bowl thing, too, in a second. But we will. Uh, we I, will. Think, I, think, um, I think it's still a theater of the unknown. I think that the NFL is probably doing a smart thing in their conversations with the NFLPA. And they've watched what's happened with golf, which is as socially distant sport as you could possibly have. Right. I think they're keeping track on what's gone on in Europe as far as the soccer leagues are concerned. And I think the NFL is going to, you know, have their pens and paper out and they're going to take, you know, very detailed notes as far as what happens with baseball, what happens with basketball, what happens with hockey, especially basketball and hockey, high contact sports of what happens before they have to make any final decisions. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm in the dark a little bit. I know just in right. my conversations with the team, as far as my own responsibilities for training camp, I think there's a lot of things that are up in the air as far as what they're planning on doing and how they're going to integrate people back into covering the team. So I know we keep saying that football's got time, but, you know, it's becoming, you know, getting to crunch time. But I guess if you yeah. push training camp back or whatever, what's the big deal? My guess, my guess is we might start this season with just the season. Yeah. And what would you think if you had to? I mean, you, you do it for golf, right? You're, you're big at the Golf Channel. You did the senior tour of doing football and not actually being at the game. 
if that were if it came down to that what would that be like and what, what would your take be on the the logistics of that almost uh well you know like i did a golf tournament a couple of weeks ago in connecticut the travelers i was actually i was there i was in a booth be, i was in a booth behind the 18 it's a hard i mean calling sports off tv is really hard i used to right. do the uh World League of American Football, NFL Europa was the last name for it. Brian Baldinger and I would go oh, yeah, down to right. NFL Films, and we would, yeah, we did the last year. Um, and we would call it off a monitor, and um, it's, it's, you got all kinds of issues. Now, that was a straight feed that you were getting, you know, specifically for NFL Network. So it's not like you had to cover commercials or a network TV deciding to do, you know, a 60 minutes promo or some sort of Fox programming promo. Um, but logistically, it's, it's hard to call football games from a monitor because especially for the analyst, um, you know, Carl Banks sits in the booth and a lot of times he's looking away from the line of scrimmage. He's looking away from the ball to help the audience understand what happened on the play or why something worked or didn't work. Right, sort of like the all the the live all twenty two view, right? Being yeah, able to sit up and, and see is, the field, right? Correct. The good analyst is the all twenty two uh, for your radio audience, and you know TV is going to have their own agenda. I mean, they're going to have uh, whatever CBS or Fox or NBC wants to do, and they want to run a promo for their next game or the second end of their double header, and you're trying to call a game off of TV. Well, what do you do for your audience on radio who doesn't care about any of Fox or CBS or NBC's programming? Right. Um, how are you filling in the blanks? Well, unless you have a dedicated, complete shot of the field at all times, it doesn't work. It certainly will, will be interesting. I mean, it, this is sort of, I mean, it is. It's unprecedented times, right? Uh, so, uh, all right, let's get back to those Super Bowls, right? We, we, we took care of that. That's today's. You've called, and then you said, you know, you did the, the World League, basically, with Brian Baldinger, or NFL Europa, whatever it was called. Um, I'm looking, I looked at your resume, you, you know, they're pretty much, you've done it all, right? I mean, 11 Olympics, I think I saw. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about, I'm not sure how much people remember, you did the Nets? Nets, you, yeah. You, you, did, you did basketball, you did uh, the Sports Channel. What to you... In your throughout your career, have you enjoyed the most? Oh, I get asked that question all the time, and it's almost like um, every sport is unique unto itself. Um, you know, I started my network TV or national TV career in 1989 at Sports Channel America, doing national high school football games of the week. They were ahead of the curve and doing boxing. And I've done boxing. Uh, I did boxing up until 2012. So that was a long run, uh, 20 something years in the boxing world. I did the Holyfield Douglas pay per view in 1990. Um, so I love doing boxing when I'm doing boxing. I love doing golf when I'm at golf. I, right. You can't really compare them because everything is everything is so different. The sports are all different. But you know, I. I had time in the studio when I was at Sports Channel America doing the NHL playoffs as the studio host. 
uh, Sports Channel New York doing their game time thing. I like being at live events. If you're asking right. me what I prefer. Of course. Uh, talk shows and all that other stuff. There's nothing better than being behind the mic, getting that nervous energy. I'll never forget the first Notre Dame game I did for NBC back in 2008. It was their, it was their home opener against Georgia Tech. Add that to the list, too. Notre, Notre Dame football. There you go. Yeah, and I got – I can't I can't tell you how nervous I was because it was like, <laughs> wow, as a kid growing up, and here I am, three, two, one, you're on. You know, welcome yeah. to Notre Dame Stadium. Notre Dame football is on the air. Uh, it was pretty cool. So, um, I don't have a preference one way or the other. I like doing them all. Um, and well, what did you grow up – what did you grow up dreaming about then? Like, what did you grow well, up like, – I mean, for, to me, it was uh, – that's why it's interesting – I remember my sport, I loved college basketball. And then as I started working and I'm like, you know what? That's probably not the way to go. It's how many college basketball reporters and writers are there, right? So you kind of mm-hmm. move around and you end up, you end up in a different field. What, what were you thinking when you were growing up and how did that morph and change over the years? Well, I mean, I grew up in the pre-cable era. So, you know, you did listen to a lot more games on the radio. And even with the Giants, when I was when I was – under 10 when I was like eight or nine. I mean, some of the home games were blacked out where you had to listen on the radio. They weren't, they weren't on on TV because it wasn't sold out. So radio was a bigger medium for my youth than it is for today. Right. Um, so I grew up listening to Nick, Ranger, and Giants games on the radio. And at the time, they were all on WNEW AM. So as a kid, yeah, my dream was to be the play-by-play voice of the Giants uh, and the play-by-play voice on the radio of the Knicks. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe do some Yankees as well. But the, the football and basketball were my passion as far as what I wanted to do for a career uh, down the road. And you go to Delaware, right, I believe Delaware was? Just for one year. For one year. And then you go to Fordham because you already know at that point that this is what you want to do. And then Fordham, obviously, they have a pretty legendary broadcasting uh, tree kind of going on there. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to go to Fordham originally. Um, You got to understand, like, my grandparents and um, my grandparents did come from Italy. My great-grandfather on my mother's side came from Sicily and, uh, you know, they had this vision of an American dream and everybody was from the Bronx, the whole family. In fact, my mother's family and my father's family basically grew up on the same block. Everybody, everybody in the families knew each other because they all shopped at my great grandfather's grocery store. You know, aspiring, my parents went to city college. So like, you know, the aspirations of building upon the next generation uh, my family wasn't too on board with me going to school basically in the neighborhood in which everybody grew up in. Right. So <clears throat> we went down, we saw Delaware and looked at Boston College, we looked at a bunch of schools up and down the East Coast. And, you know, Delaware had the frat houses and Ivy colored buildings and they had the football stadium with 45 or 50,000 seats and there was a campus town. I think that was like what the family envisioned as the next step in the evolution of like being in America. Right. So I went there. Um, but it really wasn't, you know, the, the football games were on a professional radio station. 
Um, the student radio station wasn't really any good. So I convinced my parents that I needed to go back to Fordham. They agreed. And yeah, I started one of the first things I did was go to WFUV and, and get involved with that. I was a finance and marketing major. Right. Um, my parents, my parents told me if I, my, my dad told me if you wanted to major in communications, you had to pay for it yourself. So I said, that's finance and marketing sound. And he's like, good fallback position. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. For your own for your own financial situation, you had to be a finance major, huh? Yeah, it certainly was not a bad move on his part, but it was hell while I was in school. So you go and you, and you're trying to make it in this business, right? And you go to WFAN at some point, and uh, they tell you you're not going to make it in this business, kid. I'm obviously paraphrasing to some degree, right? Mm -hmm. Explain to me what that was like, how you take that. And how you then parlay that into, you know, being successful? Well, I mean, I, you know, I was working at Sports Phone um, in college, and then I went up to Utica for a while. That job didn't really work out that well. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So I came back on Sports Phone. Um, Howie Rose was someone that I had gotten to know, and he was pushing really hard for me at FAM. At the time, it had just launched, and it was very national. Uh, all the voices on there. There were really no New Yorkers. He was the only New Yorker on there. So I went in and yeah, I had this brief meeting. I never, I'll never forget. I left the, I left the, I left the interview that lasted about three minutes. The guy <laughs> uh, who was a former ESPN executive said to me, "Yeah, you got no. You should try something else. You should, you know, think about production or something. You got no future on the air." Now remember, I'm coming out of Fordham at the time. FAN hadn't even started. There was two sports talk shows in town. There was Art Rush Jr. on WABC Monday through Friday. Mm -hmm. And there was one-on-one -on, -one on WFUV Saturday and Sunday nights. Like, we were – our show was legit. We covered all these games, doing Fordham hoops and everything. And coming out, I'm, like, going to be the next guy coming out of Fordham. And now all of a sudden this guy's telling me I've got no shot. Um, so I remember leaving. Big time slap in the face to your ego right there, I'm sure. Yeah, it was pretty I – because mean, I had had conversations with the Devils about uh, a play-by-play -play opening, at least as a backup, while I was in college my senior year. Um, some opportunities had arose. And, you know, obviously it didn't work out, but um, the fact that I was even being considered at the time, and now all of a sudden this guy at the station is telling me I got no shot. So I'll never forget, I was in my suit. I had my little briefcase. It was raining left the Kaufman Astoria Studios in Queens, and I made a beeline to, like, the nearest pay phone because there were no cell phones. Right. And I pumped the quarters in, and I called my dad at work because he wanted to know how it went. And uh, he's like, you know, he wasn't like a different era, man. It wasn't like patting me on the back or, you know, let me call somebody, whatever. He's like, so what are you going to do about it? Not like I'm sorry or anything. He's like, what are you going to do about it? I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my career proving that asshole wrong. Right. And that's pretty much what happened. Well, so what's and your dad's reaction at that point? He's like, yep, yeah, that's about the only way you're going to do it. Go prove him wrong. And then he's got to get back to work and you know, phone. And, and you did do that, obviously. So then you're sitting here. You, you're making, you, like you said, you got on the pregame show. Did you, did you, when you were doing the pre and post, 
were you looking at as sort of like a breeding ground to become the play-by-play eventually? How how are you looking at that? And did did you think that was a realistic possibility that you were going to be that the Giants guy that you are now? Yeah, well, at the time I had also because WNAW was also the home of the Nets at that point. So starting in 1988-89, I started filling in for Howard David on some of the Nets broadcasts when he had a conflict, and that's when I met Marty Glickman. And Marty hired me to be his backup on Seton Hall basketball. So that's when that was the year after they had lost in the finals. Um, you know, I got, I got, no, oh no, that was the year before they lost in the finals, right? It was because PJ almost got fired after a loss at Boston College. <laughs> but here I am doing like 10 games a year on WNEW doing Seton Hall basketball when, you know, the Big East was, as you remember, Tino was coaching at Providence. There was John Thompson and Karnaseka and the Meadowlands Arena would be 18,000 sold out for a big Monday night Seton Hall game. Yeah, now you're talking about my my generation right here. I love that. That that was my that's my wheelhouse. Yeah, right that's why I told you when I say college basketball, like I I loved Big East basketball growing up. I was a big St. John's fan. And that Seton Hall team, yeah, like you Gordon said, very Chiesa good. was the, then the coach at Providence. I mean, so it's all during that era. So now I'm like, wow, I'm on WNEWAM. I'm filling in for Marty Glickman doing Seton Hall basketball. I'm building up a resume. The Nets started using me to fill in. And meanwhile, everything that was going on with the Giants at WNEW was going along great, too, with the the tailgate show that we invented and then the post-game call-in show or the call-in show then the, the tailgate show. But I also understood something. Um, I understood about the, the, the Mara family and the Giants' loyalty, uh, which runs extremely deep. Um, right. You know, at the time – No doubt. At uh, the time, other radio stations had made plays for the radio rights for the team and the Giants stayed on WNAWAM because they had had a relationship with them going back to the early 60s. And relationship was more than a few extra bucks or whatever. Um, so, yeah, you know, is it something that I w- was, would love to have done? Sure. But I also knew that I had this tremendous respect for Jim Gordon and being in the booth doing the pregame and the postgame show and standing behind him during the games. Um, you know, I, he was so generous to me and he was so helpful to me and pointed things out. He would show me his spotter boards. He would show me little tricks and here's what you look for, this, that, and the other thing. Um, I was like, all right, well, there's no rush here. Um, and I never wanted to make him feel uncomfortable. Like I was pushing the, so I just kind of did other things. I did the New York, New Jersey nights of the original world league of American football. I did, uh, Westchester high school football games on, uh, the radio station in, in Westchester. So I was just kind of doing stuff and building my resume. And if, and when the time came, I just wanted to be ready for, for the opportunity. And a big part of this, you mentioned him before, was Marty Glickman, right? I mean, he turned out to be your mentor. Uh, I even read that you went to his house on a regular basis to sort of almost like a a class. Yeah, pretty much. Because he hadn't started working with Fordham yet. And uh, it was like one of those down points. I had come back from... I had come back from Utica. I was back working at Sports Phone, which was kind of a bummer. 
the FAN thing didn't pan out. And Frank McLaughlin, who was the athletic director at Fordham at the time, uh, offered me a job as the PA announcer for Fordham basketball. So, like, I was like, all right, I'll take it. And Frank was always a real big supporter of my broadcasting. And Frank, um, Fordham was playing Seton Hall in an early December non-conference game at Rose Hill. And I was kind of going through the lineups and stuff like that. And Frank comes over and goes, hey, I want, I want to introduce you to somebody. So um, I get up, I walk over, and it's Seton Hall Radio. You know, it's like two hours before the game. Mm-hmm. And there's the legendary Marty Glickman. And Frank does this sales job. Like, Marty, I want you to meet Bob Pop. He graduated this past May. He's done the He's one of the best play-by-play announcers to ever come out of the school. We've got a great history, and this guy could be the next Marv Albert, blah, 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 blah. Marty looked up. Nice to meet you, Keed. He called everybody Keed. Um, <laughs> and uh, he said, why don't you uh, send me some of your tapes? would love to hear them. So I sent them. I went, went home the next day. I got some cassette tapes. That's football, basketball, play-by-play. He gave me his phone number and his address, and I gave him mine. And like a week later, he called me and he said, hey, I'm listening to your tapes, uh, some things that we can work on. He goes, but this is, this is professional grade. You could be on the air right now. Uh, why don't you come over to my apartment uh, on the Upper East Side, and uh, let's go through some of them. And he invited me over periodically to give me little pointers, and I still have a – I lost it, but I still have a committed to memory of Glickman's glitches, like things that you don't do on the radio. I used to tape it up on the wall next to me for 20 give, years. Give, give me an example. What's, what's a Glickman's glitch? Um, what can, you, what can but, you not do on the, on the air? Uh, don't do a live read right into play-by-play. He said, make believe it's like someone turning the page of a newspaper. If you're going to do a live read, you do the live read, then you pause for a second just to give the audience a chance to flip the newspaper page and now begin into your play-by-play. Um, time, score, clock, and radio is imperative because you can't assume that everybody has been listening to you for the entire game. Um, you know, extra, extra words of description. Instead of a man in motion, he jogs in motion. He sprints in motion from left to right. Um, you know, lot, you know, the big burly wide receiver, the tall, lanky wide receiver, just a lanky or uh, the slight tailback is offset to the right. The burly muscle bound tail, you know, little words like that that are painting right. the word picture for your radio audience that you never need on TV. That's so, uh, yeah, so I, so we started going over this stuff and that's when he invited me. He and his wife, Marge, um, used to love in the wintertime to go um, skiing in Europe. And Marty's like, you know, Marge and I have a ski trip planned. I'm going to miss a couple of Seton Hall games here. And I recommend it to the people at WNEW that you were the perfect person to fill in for. Sure enough, I'm doing Seton Hall play-by-play on the famed WNEW for one of those Big East Monday 7 p.m. tip-offs. There you go. So you feel like when you you ever notice it, you catch yourself when you do stuff, you feel like, you know, you, you sort of the new age Marty Glickman and in some in some of the maybe techniques that you use or just things that you might say. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many, like, terms that, like, if you're doing basketball or whatever, that he just made commonplace. Like, Marv Albert has made yes commonplace. Right. Um, and, yeah, there's little markers on the field, you know, the hash, you know, swings his way around the right edge. You know, that's all, like, Marv Albert. Uh, that's all Marty Glickman stuff, and Marv Albert learned from him as well. So, um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty fascinating. Um so it's it's yeah there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of glickman and a lot of us whether it's chris carino spiro ditas um and a lot of the fordham people uh that came out this podcast is proud to be supported by jets pizza the number one pick in detroit style pizza why it's simple jets is better with the thickest crispiest cheesiest detroit style pizza in the country there's no competition Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. Feeling like you need a marketing degree and an extra day in your week to successfully market your small business? Let Constant Contact do the heavy lifting for you. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has powerful tools that make it easy to grow your audience, engage your customers, and sell more to boost your business. Now, in just a few clicks, you can launch a marketing campaign that's tailored to your business and goals. That includes email, social, SMS, and more. So you can sell more, raise more, and fast-track your business growth. Plus, you can always count on Constant Contact's award-winning customer support for guidance along the way. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Constant Contact. Helping the small stand tall. So... You finally get your chance with the Giants, right? Let's let's, let's go with those. Uh, do you, what do you remember about you said those filling games, right? So you mm-hmm. you filled in once or twice over the years for Jim Gordon before you got the, the actual play by play job, right? Yeah, I think. In, I what think was in that 90, like? Well, I remember '92 was the Giants Rams in Anaheim. It was a half empty stadium. I think it was Jerome Bettis's rookie year. Um, I remember being very nervous. Um, I remember being a little overwhelmed. And then I started thinking about, you know, White Plains High School football on WFAS in Westchester, and it's still a football game and the field's 100 yards. Um, And all of a sudden I realized, damn, my resources are a lot better. There's media notes. There's, like, actual rosters. There's not four guys on the field wearing number 16 for the same team. (laughs) Um, I've actually heard of these people that I'm announcing. So, no, I felt like at that time in 92, I was really ready to go. And then I got – Jim Gordon had gotten sick in 93 a little bit. So I did a Giants-Dolphins game. I think that was the game where LT, like, shattered the face mask of Steve DeBerg. 
Um, Brian, so Brian Cox lost his top from what I saw in that game. I yeah. When I was researching, he, he, had a, he walked off the field at the end of the game. I don't know if you remember this. I, I just happened to pop it up yesterday when I saw that was the game. He had to be walked off the field by Joe Green with like yeah. a, minute, a minute left. And like if that was today, and I was thinking if that was like today, people would be going nuts. He basically just left the field. He didn't get kicked out of the game. He just basically walked off the field with like a minute left in the game. I know. It was pretty crazy. That was a crazy game, man. Um, I think Howard Cross had a big game that game. But anyway. And they were both really good teams at the time. Uh, the Giants yeah. and the Dolphins that year going into the game uh, were two of the better teams in the NFL. Yeah, so I remember, you know, that. And that, at that point, I felt completely comfortable. Like, that point, it was like, all right, I got sure you. belong, yeah. Yeah, I hope Jim Gordon is okay, and hopefully he's – and he did. He came back strong for the next season or whatever, and it was like, all right. But now at that point I knew um, that I could do this. And I'll never forget, in that point in time, as I started doing Giants games, there had been um, chatter or talk about the possible jet job opening up and the jet job might be available. And I remember talking to Marty Glickman, and um, he's like, yeah, he said, no, it would be a good opportunity, he said, but um, the Giants are really where you want to hang your hat. Now, remember, Marty left right. the Giants to go work for the Jets because yeah, it was like a better offer 70s? on the table. And, yeah. Early, early and 70s, he, I believe. Yeah, and he said, you know, if I could do it again, I probably would have not made that move because there's a loyalty factor with the Giants and – a continuity that's with them that it's not that it's not that easy to find elsewhere. Right. Um, so I remember there was like some conversations, would you be interested? And my TV career was taken off at that point. I'm like, nah, I'm kind of good where I am. And when the time comes, if, and when the time comes and I'm fortunate enough to get the opportunity, I'd rather it be here than uh, somewhere else. So was there a job offer you're saying, or were you just sort of like, looking into it and deciding whether you really wanted to throw your hat in the ring? Uh, there had been – my agent at the time had had some conversations with Steve Gutman, who was the president of the yeah, Jets. the president, right. <clears throat> there had been some interest level. Would you be interested? And No, I was doing so many things. I'd done a couple Olympics at that point. I was on Sports Channel America doing boxing. And I, I had a full plate um, – I think in 95, I wore six. One of those years, I wound up at ESPN starting doing boxing. So I, I was in no real rush, put it that way. Plus, uh -huh. I was doing the net stuff. It was it was a smart move. But the one thing Marty Glickman did tell me was – Of course, um, you're sitting here 25 years later. You're still the play-by-play -play man in the Giants. He said – the one thing he said that was really smart was he said, you know, never give up your New York ties. He said, look at Marv Albert. At the time when Marv Albert was doing – you know, everything nationally, he kept, you know, he, he would always scramble to do Nick and Ranger games on the radio. Like, right. Um, and Marty said, you know, no matter how big you get nationally, keep a tie to a New York team because uh, radio in New York is as good as being national. And you just, you always want to keep your, your hand in with a, with the team. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I've just loved being with the Giants all these years. So is that the reason behind you? I mean, even to till today, you're doing 
you know, Giants.com stuff. You're doing the MSG stuff. You're, you're making sure you're still doing all these other shows. I mean, you probably don't have to do that at this point of your career, but you still elect to do that. What's the thinking behind that? Well, I mean, a lot of it's built into my contract with all the Giants digital and show stuff because, you know, when I first started, there was one kind of show and it aired on, you know, MSG or Channel 9 yeah, or, or 9 or 11, whatever. Channel 5, there was Steve, one that was on CBS. You know, the, so the business has changed, so you got to kind of keep up with it as far as, you know, what they ask you to do digital platform-wise, and that's kind of mm -hmm. the way the world is going. Uh, I still keep my hand in it serious because it just kind of gives you a good pulse on the rest of the league. I'm a little bit more selective now of what I choose to do, what I don't choose to do, and the Giants are also pretty good at not bombarding me with stuff. I mean, there's a lot of times where they're just like, because they don't want to overexpose me to the fan base either where I'm on everything. Right. Because then it just gets boring. Uh -huh. So it's, it's a pretty good balance. You look back, you know, over these 26 years, you, you think of favorite games and, and moments that you've covered. What comes to mind? Well, I mean, it's pretty hard to – it's pretty hard to bypass the Super Bowls. Of I mean, course. so if we go super, if we, if you ask me the question, so not rank, rank the Super Bowls. How about that for start for you? Well, I mean, 42 is, you know, off the charts. Yeah. Um, I was part of the pre and post game show in 90, but I, you know, I thought the Giants were going to win that Super Bowl. Um, 2000, I was, I was shocked at the way that game turned out. And by the way, that game was on NFL network recently. The game in its entirety, uh -huh. the game was so much closer than the final score shows. Yeah, well, the, I mean, that that interception penalty, right? That was that was a just six. Well, that was yeah, the Jesse Armstead pick six, and they called defensive holding on Keith Hamilton. But even totally different even, game if that that turns the other way. Yeah, but even into the second half, it's only a one-score game, and the Giants move the ball up and down the field between the twenties. It's a uh -huh. I would encourage Giants fans. I know you don't like to fans don't like to look at the L's and and the bad stuff, but I would encourage Giants fans the next time NFL Network has it to buckle up your chin strap and actually sit through it because that game was a lot more competitive than it, than people remember. Um, obviously, that Kerry Collins had a horrible game and everything else, but I didn't. I had forgotten how close that game was actually, and that the Giants were really in it well into the second half. The score clearly doesn't indicate that. Uh, I got off on a tangent there. So 42 is oh, obviously – that's obviously crazy. I mean, I thought they were going to win 46. In fact, I'm surprised 46 turned out to be as close as it was. And the Giants were rolling them. Um, and, the you know, the Patriots made a couple of adjustments. I think the, uh, the other – the other game that's really extremely memorable for me is the um, – has to be the 07 NFC Championship game in Green Bay at oh, Lambeau sure. Field. Because, I mean, Eli and Plaxico and Amani, they made it look like it was 75 and sunny that day. Yeah. And um, it was just amazing. You know, everyone said, well, Eli, college, Mississippi, you know, he's not used to the cold. Favre's used to it. Nobody's Favre used to that cold, by the way. Let's be honest. <laughs> right. That's, that's not even normal in, in any way. For even – I don't care where you grew up. You grew up in the North Pole. That was, that's, like, extreme. 
But I mean, that was, that was an incredible display. I mean, uh, you sit there and you watch it and you're just like, they made it look easy. Um, and that was another game that probably shouldn't have gone to overtime. Bradshaw had like a long touchdown run in the fourth quarter that got called back. They called the hold, I think on Snee. Um, but so that one sticks out. That's obviously a big one. The NFC yeah, championship game in San Francisco against the Niners was, was pretty cool. I think, um, I think to me, that might've been Eli's best game. That that's that championship game in San Francisco. Cause he was just getting pounded, just pounded by that defense and that, that NFC championship game. That, yeah. That I mean, was, he could have won, he could have won the MVP in the NFL that year. Cause yeah. everyone forgets that. was that, his best uh, season. That 11 season to me was his best overall season from start to finish probably. Cause that wasn't a well, great team around him as much as that, but that was his prime year to me. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, they, their, their rushing offense was like 30. 30th in the NFL. I think it was 32nd. Yeah. I'm almost positive. It was 32nd, but they did get it together. That running yeah, game, like around the, the playoff game, time, yeah. Yeah, the start with the Jet game. And even the defense was horrible that year. I mean, he basically carried the team uh, that season. And uh, he played well again in 12. Yeah. And those, you know, those, were his best, those were his best two seasons. That's when he was carrying the Giants. He was at the point of his career where he could carry the Giants at that point because that's the kind of player he was. That was – what years like uh, so he's four like year seven of his career so that's really your around your prime right he's getting into yeah. his like upper twenties somewhere around there close to little under thirty even two thousand ten if you remember I mean this new playoff format where they're you know an extra seed gets in in each conference mm-hmm. two thousand ten Giants went ten and six and they didn't get in um, right so well, that's they, the thing they, they, they were actually, up they were a good team for that a pretty long stretch there. Until kind of that 12, 13 range. Yeah, here's the thing. Like, to me, the the one thing I'll always feel bad about for Eli, not that he needs any sympathy, but the one thing I'll always feel bad about is, you know, Eli, when he hoisted that Lombardi trophy for the second time, you know, was 30 years old, 31 years old. And he was a two-time Super Bowl MVP. And the mistakes that they made as far as drafting and the handling of the offensive line, either who they signed or misses on draft picks, uh, especially those early draft picks, it's a shame because, you know, they they were going through that revolving door of tight ends and all that silly stuff where they just said Mike Pope, no matter who Mike you gave Mike Pope, he was going to make him good. Like, eventually that runs out. Whoever you give Flaherty, he's going to coach him up. That all runs out after a while. At some point, you need to bring in some level of talent. They're not miracle workers. You mean Adrian Robinson, the uh, JPP of tight ends? That wasn't the answer? Yeah, and a (laughs) a million others. And it's like... uh, Myers, who was his first name? Branded. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's kind of sad because like, if you look at sort of what the saints have done with breeze and what, um, you know, the Patriots did for a long time with Brady and, you know, it's like, and he, I, maybe Eli should have said something. Maybe he should have spoken up a little bit more, not his nature, but it's like, you had a guy who was 31 who just hoisted his second Lombardi trophy and a second Super Bowl MVP. I'm shocked that they never got to another Super Bowl. I'm not saying they would have won another one, mm-hmm. but don't you feel like 
they, they just the, the personnel and drafting just for those you know, stretch of years turned out so poorly that it was like, man, you what? what? They just weren't a good team from top to bottom. From from there's basically like two two halves of Eli's career, right? There's the 04 to let's say 12, maybe 13, and then there's 13 to 20 or 19, where they just they're basically just two separate parts of his careers. The first half he's surrounded and has a good team around, and the second half he just didn't. He he really just didn't. So what? What are some do you, do you view yourself as having a signature call? I mean, there's the you know the Eli to Plaxico in the Super Bowl, the the Victor Cruz ninety nine yarder, the uh, the Tynes game winning field goal uh, in that Green Bay game. Uh, yeah, the, the Does anything stick out to you of like your favorite call? Yeah, I mean the Tynes won. A lot of people say that they love the like my Ron Dixon touchdown uh, opening kickoff run in the 2000 playoffs against the Eagles or the Seahorn one, uh, the Bradshaw run um, uh, against Buffalo, you know, that kind of sealed the playoff spot. I don't know. I never, I never really, I never really uh, rank them or anything like that. I just hope people enjoyed them and hopefully I got them right. You did uh I did see something. Did this really happen? Uh, that I've, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing my research on you, and it says uh, you once dropped a line about Roy Williams. Roy Williams running, he falls. Uh, he was going. Oh yeah, yeah. That was on the. That was on the. Um, that was that was on the Imani Tumor. Uh, that was on the Imani Tumor catch and run for a touchdown in the 2007 playoff game against the uh, against the Cowboys. Yeah, Roy Williams fell down. I can't remember what the line was. Yeah, because Roy Roy Williams was getting voted to Pro Bowls every year. And, like, he was a nice player, but I think he was part of a publicity machine, you know, being a cowboy and stuff like that. He couldn't cover anybody. I mean, um, he was a really good player, and I hate to say it because I love him as a guy, but, I mean, see Landon Collins. Yeah. You know, um, Landon Collins is a really good player, and he's a good in-the-box safety. And you'd want him on your team any day of the week because of everything that he brings to the table, a good guy, good teammate, good everything. Let's not start confusing him with Ed Reed or Troy Palomalo or, like, some of the best safeties in the game. Not. Right. I mean, he's, no. a, Agreed. he's a very limited player. And what Whatever what he does, but that's his skill set, right? You know, the, the very specific, yeah. very specific skill set. And the yeah. problem that happened, the problem that you get a lot of times too with this stuff is, um, you know, unfortunately, for fans get really attached because I know about this because I grew up as a kid in the '70s when the Giants were awful, like awful, no free agency, nothing, no chance of them ever really getting any good. And you fall in love with the best players on the team and fans fall in love with them because you're looking for anything to grasp and latch onto is like your version of a star. But in the broad picture of things, you got a lot of times fans don't realize like sort of the limitations. Like I understood why the Giants walked away from Landon Collins mm-hmm. and why they didn't want to franchise him and that kind of money when you consider the injuries, the forearm injury the style of play, like you want to be locked in a 
16 million bucks on, on a player of that. Not that he, and not, it's not being disrespectful to him either. It's just what makes sense. No, and absolutely. so, yeah, that, so Roy Williams was a very similar kind of player who got rubber stamped to the Pro Bowl every year because he was Roy Williams of the Cowboys. And I always found it funny. And, <laughs> and I said something to the effect of, and Roy Williams fell down. <laughs> but he's still on his way to the Pro Bowl, I think it was, something, something yeah. like that. So last one, right? What's it like working with Carl Banks and, you know, before that, Dick Lynch, uh, Dave Jennings, Howard Cross, and working with these guys as, your, you know, your analysts? Uh, it's like a little one-on-one uh, education class, man. Um, Dick Lynch was so much smarter than his on-air personality sort of led people to believe. He kind of played the role of the Phil Rizzuto of the Giants broadcast booth with his, right. uh, you know, misspoken words and getting all tongue-tied and stuff like that. But Dick Lynch had an incredible football IQ. I mean, he could see things. He could distill things. He could look at a guy's technique, tell you why they were getting beat. And he was a real – I learned a lot from Dick Lynch. Um, and he taught me a lot about the game. Carl obviously came from that next era of where film study became a bigger thing. Uh-huh. And Carl is definitely – Carl studies today as he did when he was a player and um, watching film with him because as Phil Sims taught me a long time ago, he said, look, and I remember when they were starting to make game film coaches tape available to the public. And I remember Dan Reeves telling me the same thing and, and Phil Sims both told me the same thing. It's like, this is not a good thing. And I'm like, why? This is now an opportunity for people to really see. And I remember them both saying to me, like, unless you know what you're looking for, unless you know what the calls are, unless Mm -hmm. you know what the assignments are, because they could be being coached improperly um, or, and grades are being given out where internally guys are getting high grades, but, or vice versa. Um, but unless you know what the calls are, what the checks are, what the quarterback's progression is going to be in their system, you're looking at it blindly. Um, so Carl kind of showed me how to watch tape, what to look for, how to study it. And then with him knowing a lot of the coaches from around the league because of age and the fact that he's known a lot of these guys for a long time, mm-hmm. he knows philosophically what he's looking at so he could say okay in this this is what they're really trying to get to so uh yeah you learn a lot just just for the evolution of uh of of uh, analysts that is what you're describing basically yeah i mean i'm working with collinsworth when i did uh <clears throat> thursday night football his preparation i i don't think people can can under could even imagine his like level of preparation for a telecast is sick. Uh, Matt Millen just couldn't watch enough enough film. Like and you sit with these guys and you just sit there all day and you watch them watch film and it's amazing what they look for. Millen would watch yeah. the play like fifty times, just one play, just go over and back and back and back and back. And look at look at his right hand. And look at his left foot. Look yeah. how out of you realize how little you actually know about football in comparison Correct. to some of these guys. For sure, uh, I never I never try to hide that. You know, like 
you're only as good as the information that people give you, right? Or that, that people are able to, to share with you. So, uh, but yeah, Bob, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, and you're 26. Hopefully it goes smoothly. We'll see how it goes. And you, you know, another 26 more, Bob. Okay. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks Got for it? having me, man. Hey, anytime. I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. Bob Papa, ladies and gentlemen, the play-by-play -play voice of the New York Giants. On to the next one. I hope you guys all enjoyed that as much as I did because uh, I really enjoyed that. I mean, I could have sat there and talked to Bob for like another hour or so. Uh, selfishly, maybe, it's because this is my profession. But I do like to hear how people, people's journey in their profession, how they become successful. I, I, I really do believe, no matter what field it is, you can take – a little piece of that no matter what it is you're doing and apply it to yourself because successful people have a lot of similar traits so and there's no doubt I mean Bob Papa is at the top of his profession right I mean he done Olympics and, and look a lot of this stuff I never even knew before I did the research like I didn't know he did the he did NBA I didn't know he was the Nets announcer I didn't know he did Seton Hall basketball games so I did. I did know that he was that Bob was the uh, the pre and post game Giants before he became the play by play. But I didn't know about all these other things on the side. I did know about the boxing. That's kind of what I remember Bob Papa when I was younger was the boxing part of it. He was like the voice of boxing at a bunch of networks for a while. So yeah, and then. Once I got to the – this will be the Jordan on the beat part of this episode where I tell you what it's like to be the Giants reporter or work for ESPN or be on TV is that when I'm at games and stuff or I, I'm in like at places where I'm covering the Giants, I do get a decent amount of – you know, you kind of look like a little bit younger Bob Papa, which to me, I'll take that. That's a compliment. First of all, Bob Papa – is extremely successful. Okay? That's number one. And number two, good-looking guy. I'll take it. Bob Pop is a good-looking guy. So if you want to tell me I look like Bob, okay. No complaints here. I mean, it could be way worse than that. So if anybody sees me and they want to tell me, hey, you know what? You look kind of look like Bob Papa. Okay. I'll take it. Now, I'll tell you, you know, Bob, when I was reading up on him, it said he used to sit there with his tape recorder and basically do play-by-play play play of games. It's funny because I didn't do that regularly when I was younger. I really didn't know. Like I, I wasn't as uh, focused, I guess, as Bob. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think the, my first idea of what I wanted to do was maybe when I was searching for a major in college – by the way, this is after two years in Maryland. So I, as I'm searching for a major at college, I realized I want to be in sports. And I enjoyed my my generation. His, Bob's generation was, was sitting at home, right, and, and listening to the radio. This is what he talked about uh, growing up. I did that as well a little bit. You know, my, my parents shut the lights off. I, I put the radio and the clock radio on and would try and find the, you know, you scroll that little... Uh, dial back and forth so you land exactly on whatever the Yankee station was at the time. It was at 770, I believe. And, you know, my parents 
would shut the door and put me to sleep, and I'd try to put it on real low so I could listen to the Yankee game or put the – when I got a TV in my room. But it was one of those I'm, – I'm an idiot. So it was one of those tube TVs, and so you're, you're supposed to be going to sleep. You turn it on, and you put the, you turn the sound down because you think, you know, you, you're trying to be slick and your parents aren't going to hear But these are the old – this was an older TV, so it actually hissed a little bit when you turned it on. So basically, I would turn the sound down, but you would still hear like a And of course, my parents would be like, we hear the TV on, turn it off. And then, So anyway, I was someone who was raised in a generation where, on Mike and the Mad Dog, really, right? So by the time I'm about a sophomore in college, you know what? Maybe I want, that's what I want to do. I want to talk sports for a living. This is, I'm, I'm one dimensional. This, this is all I do. I know sports. I follow sports, New York sports. I want to be Mike and the Mad Dog. So how do you be successful in the radio industry? And at the time, there was a lot of people. It was, you know, I was in Maryland and D.C. Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon, they were newspaper guys, but they, they were making their way over to radio and TV. So I was like, you know what? That's a good way to do it. Do like, be a writer, be a reporter and then work your way and become Mike and the Mad Dog. And I even remember, like, I was never a big play-by-play guy, but my only memory of being doing, of, like, at least looking into it, was I was about, I was in college. And so it was about, a, it was about that sophomore, junior year in college. And I remember sitting there with the tape recorder watching some sort of Braves game and announcing it into the tape recorder. And my roommates came in, and they still to this day, Love that story, man. Making fun of my tape recorder of me sitting there completely monotone with like no inflection or <laughs> God, they were awful. It's almost as bad as post college when me and my buddy bought airtime. Right, we we did like a sports talk show just to get reps, you know, sort of uh, at a local station. Not so. Not only did it was it not a job, but you had to pay for the airtime. So I was paying to uh, to do to do uh, to get reps and to to do some radio. But anyway, oh, God, that tape of me sitting there doing play-by-play, I think I realized that that probably wasn't going to be for me uh, at the time. So uh, play-by-play, for some reason, never really entered my mind of something I wanted to do, probably for good reason. And Bob was a little more focused than I was, it seems, at at a younger age. So, all right, that's going to be the end of this episode of Breaking Big Blue. As always, remember, subscribe like this episode, like this podcast, tell your friends, spread the word. As always, you can reach me, Twitter, Instagram, email, Facebook, you know, everywhere, social media and elsewhere. Don't call my cell phone. Don't find my cell phone number. Please don't do that. Uh, But otherwise, feel free to reach out to me. And we're going to talk about football soon. You know, the 2020 Giants, I promise. We'll even have an episode probably early next week where I'll answer all. It'll just be me answering all your questions. We'll do a Giants After Dark entire episode pre-training camp. And then I'll even do one hopefully on Twitter or Instagram Live, one or the other, uh, sometime here in the next few weeks, maybe right before training camp or right after it opens, uh, just to sort of show you what it's like to be uh, to cover the Giants these days. It will probably be pretty interesting. So on that note, That's the end of this episode of Breaking Big Blue. I'm your host, Jordan Ronan. See you next time.